continue our study through the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 16. Uh, So whether you have your physical Bible here with you or electronic version, that's all good. If you don't have it with you, we have some in the back or you can um, just follow along um, as I read the verses. Uh, But we're continuing our chapter uh, 16. And, you know, this morning, first we want to just welcome people and say we're glad you're here, especially if you're visiting with us, you know, on this Easter Sunday. Um, we're really, really glad that you're here today. But, um, you know, many people are expecting a message about the resurrection of Jesus on, you know, Easter Sunday, right? And so we do have some of that in here today. Um, we'll get to it, but it's not going to be obvious at first. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that uh, from the beginning. So uh, we want to begin in Luke chapter 16 this morning. But before we do that, I want to give just a speck of context, and then um, we'll pray and, and get right into the passage. So, um, in, the, in the passage today, we have a, a lot going on with Jesus and his relationship uh, with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you remember, are the religious leaders um, of the day. These are the ones telling the people what is you know, right and what is wrong, and you know, how to know God and, and how to follow God. But Jesus um, had a consistent conflict with these religious leaders. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, it starts back in Luke chapter 5 when the Pharisees first accused Jesus of committing the sin of blasphemy because uh, there was a, a man who was paralyzed that was brought to Jesus. You may remember the story of a man being lowered down through a roof um, you know, on a mat, and Jesus forgives his sins. And the Pharisees, you know, said, the religious leader said, you know, who is this? He says he can forgive sins. And so, they were accusing Jesus of committing blasphemy. In Luke chapter 6, they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Um, In Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30, we have these words. It says, The people, even the tax collectors, agreed that God's way was right, for they had been baptized by by John. But the, the Pharisees and experts in religious law rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. And then in Luke chapters 11 through 15, we really have one conflict after another um, with the Pharisees. And even last week when we looked at chapter 15, and chapter 15 is about, you know, a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son, and how God is the one who is, you know, seeking to save those who are lost. And Jesus gives those parables in direct um, confrontation with the religious leaders who were looking down at Jesus and say, why is he a friend of tax collectors, those who are traitors, you know, being in league with the Roman government, and those who are notorious sinners? Why is Jesus hanging out with people like that? Why is he speaking with people in, of, of, in that realm? And Jesus is very clear in the parables that he gives that, you know, heaven rejoices. There's rejoicing in heaven whenever one sinner repents. Whenever one person who knows their loss, you know, humbles themselves and says, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And so that was the message that Jesus was, 
was giving to them. And, and so this is going to continue. And here in chapter 16, as far as the Gospel of Luke is concerned, is where we really have kind of the apex of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll get right into it. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. Uh, we thank you that we're here ultimately because our Savior and King Jesus is risen from the dead, uh, raised by your power, O oh God. We thank you for your great love for us that sent us your Son to begin with, that while we um, were lost without hope, without a Savior, without um, anything to cleanse our, us from our sins, Lord, that you sent Emmanuel, um, God with us, the one to put on human flesh and to be like us in every way, yet without sin, and the one who would go and suffer at the cross. And so, Lord, while your suffering, Jesus, was, was great, and we give you thanks for it, your resurrection, um, even more glorious. And we praise you, Jesus, that you are risen, that we have a, a risen Savior, a risen God, and not a dead one. And Lord, uh, we love you this morning, and may our hearts um, be drawn in affection towards you today. In your name, Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Okay, so let's read in um, the beginning of this, Luke chapter 16, and it says, Jesus told this story to his disciples. Now, again, remember in the context, I think you also have Pharisees that are listening in here. But he told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. And one day, a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because are you, going, you are going to be fired. And the manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. I know how to ensure that I will have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I am fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and to discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Now let's just stop there for a minute because, you know, when we read this story, you know, I first read this story, I go, wait a second, this seems like an odd story to tell. Like, Jesus, this seems like a, an odd story for you to tell the people because it seems like the hero of this story is a dishonest guy. So what do we, what do, we do with this? But now Jesus is going to use a bad example to give us good lessons. Okay? He can use a bad example to give us good lessons. And so one of the lessons that he's teaching right from the beginning here that we have in verse 8, when it said... The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. It says, true, the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. You know, we, it should kind of be expected that if you are a person who, you know, goes after God and follows after the kingdom of God, that you're not going to be as good at, you know, manipulating things 
as people that are not living for God, who are just living for this world and for the benefits that this world brings, that you, you know, wouldn't be as crafty as they are about being dishonest and doing, you know, kind of shrewd dealings. So that's one thing he says. But then he gives the lesson. Here's the lesson. Verse 9, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and to make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. And so he's using the lesson, the shrewd manager who, you know, was dishonest but still had control over his, you know, boss's um, affairs, you know, caused those bills to be lower because he wanted to make some friends, right? And he wanted after he was, you know, you know, literally fired, done with, with this job. He wanted to be able to go to the guy, you know, that owed all that olive oil. I mean, you think about that. That's a, that's a lot of olive oil. We use olive oil in my house, you know, to cook. And 800 gallons of olive oil, that is a lot. And that is expensive. And so, you know, you go, hey, remember how I got that bill to be, eight, you know, from, you gave you a 50% discount, how it went from 800 gallons to 400 gallons. Um, I kind of need some help. And he could expect that he would be taken care of. Same with the one that owed um, all the, the wheat. And so Jesus is saying here, use your worldly resources to benefit others and to make friends. It's a, it's a really good practical advice. Um, and it's a contrast. We're going to see it's a contrast with the Pharisees who were greedy and were stingy with their money. And what Jesus expects of his followers is that Jesus expects his followers to be the most generous people on earth. Jesus does not expect his followers to be stingy. Being a follower of Jesus and being stingy are are at odds with one another. They're in conflict with one another. You know, I, I... a stingy follower of Jesus is kind of like a, a jumbo shrimp. You know, it doesn't, it's like, what? What's that? You know, it doesn't make necessarily a whole lot of sense. You know, so we would, we would look at it and go, okay, we, we got to have a change there in perspective. And so when your possessions are, all, are gone, they'll welcome you into our eternal home. And what Jesus is saying here is that you can use something that is temporary. You can use something that is material, and you can turn it into something of eternal value. Because when you help other people in the process of helping them, you know, with their physical needs, you can help them in a, in a spiritual manner as well. You know, there's something that we talk about, you know, it's like one of the reasons, it's certainly not the only reason to feed the poor, but one of the reasons that you feed the poor is because people who have starved to death cannot hear the message of Jesus Christ. They can't receive the spiritual benefit if they're not physically alive to receive it. And so we want to be able to use our resources to benefit others. And then he says this. Here's another lesson. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two is, verse 10, it says, If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in larger ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? If you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? 
And so now Jesus is going back to that illustration and where, you know, you can say he w- the guy was shrewd and that, you know, he had made a, a way for, him, for himself. You can also see that he was dishonest in what he had. And that's not the way of the kingdom. A person who's dishonest with the, dishonest with the gifts and resources that God gives, you know, God's not, he, what he's saying there is God's not pleased with that. God's not pleased with that. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And so God does, he is giving here that God has this expectation that followers of Jesus are going to be honest about their worldly affairs, even if it doesn't benefit them. That followers of Jesus are going to be honest when it comes time to pay their taxes. That followers of Jesus are going to be honest when it comes to, you know, paying bills and when it comes to... um, being honest about how much another person owes you, that you're not going to inflate a bill just because you might have the power or the ability to do so, that you're not going to be dishonest in, in how you deal with money here on this earth. Because if you were dishonest with that, then who could trust you? How could God trust you with the true riches of heaven? And so here, you know, we have some, some clear things. And, you know, it can be tough sometimes because... You know, on the human side of it, you know, we can make justifications. Well, the government's just going to waste my money, and so if I don't give them what they do, then I can use that money for better things. Well, that's a sort of justification that God doesn't want us to use. Why? Because that's not our, our responsibility isn't to say how much we owe our government. That's not our job is to be the one who judges that. Now, obviously, we live in a democracy, so we have, you know, the advantage of having a little bit of power to be able to vote about stuff. But we really don't have that much. We have itsy-bitsy amount. We're still oftentimes, you know, picking between, you know, not ideal things. We're not actually the ones writing the tax code, right? Now, I don't know anybody in this room writing tax code, but we've got to pay taxes. And so... Again, if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? If you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? And then Jesus says this. We'll get to the third lesson. No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's powerful. And again... We're going to see about how this connects with the Pharisees. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or you can't love both God and money. Again, those things are are not compatible. To, To be a follower of Jesus that loves money just doesn't make any sense. Just doesn't make any sense. It's contrary to the way of Jesus. Because what we're seeing here is that money can, can be a good servant. It can be used for good things, but money is a terrible master. On the way, way here, um, a couple of guys I run with me, and one of them noticed, he said, you know, this lady was walking her dog, but it was actually the dog that was walking the lady <laughs> as she's getting kind of drugged down the street. Okay, who, who's the master in that relationship? The dog is. No, it's supposed to be the woman, not the dog. 
Okay, in, this relation, in your relationship with money, when you look at your checking account or you look at the cash in your pocket, does it control you or do you control it? Does it dictate your attitude, your perspective, your heart, or does your heart for God dictate how you look at that money or that number? And even your future earnings and your desires. What controls what? What is the motivation? We need to be people who are getting up for, in the morning for a bigger reason than to get a paycheck. That, that, you know, that paycheck is important because obviously, you know, we have mortgages and rents and, you know, we have to put food on the table and we have kids to feed and we have these things, right? But the money itself isn't the ultimate motivation. It's how that money can be used to serve God and to serve other people. So it's about, you know, motivation with that. But here Jesus is really clear. And so don't get mad at me this morning if you don't like the words that, that Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. Because it's, it's ultimately Jesus that you're not happy with if you don't like those words. It's him that you're not happy with. Verse 14. Because there were some people who were unhappy when they heard this. It says, the Pharisees who dearly loved their money heard all of this and scoffed at him. You see, they heard that message and they scoffed. They were like, you know, it it, it was in such conflict to their love of money that they had to utterly reject it. They couldn't see any truth in it at all because of their personal perspective and motivation in life was they're going to get theirs. What we've seen throughout in terms of what motivates the Pharisees, there's three things that motivate the Pharisees. Power, position, and possessions. Power, position, and possessions. That's what motivates a Pharisee. And so that's a good way to ask the question in one's own life. What am I motivated by? And if the answer is power, position, possessions, well, you know, you might want to think, I don't want to be like a Pharisee. So Jesus, please change my motivations. Please change my motivations. Because I don't want to be like these who scoffed at Jesus and his teaching. Power, position, possessions. Isn't the world still just seeking after those with reckless abandon? And doesn't that cause so much of the problems that, you know, that we have in our world of famines and wars? It's this unhealthy desire for power and position and possessions and not to use those things for the benefit of, those, of other people but to use it for the elevation of oneself. Because ultimately, you know, power and position and possessions are neutral things. But it's the attitude of one's heart in seeking them and how one uses those things where the problems come. You know, there's some people that I, I hope they have power, by that I mean influence in our world, because their hearts are good. There's people I want to have position in this world because their hearts are good. 
There's people that want to have possessions in this world because their hearts are good. You know, I hope some people that I know that really, really love Jesus is like, I hope your business thrives and I hope, you know, the money is just flowing. Why? Because that person's not going to be controlled by that, but they're going to control that money and use it to serve other people. So again, those things are neutral. What is the issue is the heart of the Pharisee. That's the issue. And that's actually the issue this morning. The issue is my heart. And the issue is your heart. That's the issue. Because again, we can point our fingers at the Pharisees. But what about what's in our own hearts? And that's one of our prayers for this morning is that in light of the resurrection of Jesus, the light of God would, of God would shine in to the, any dark crevice in our own hearts. Anything where we're not like him and we don't see as he sees. Anything that hasn't yet been affected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to them, verse 15, he said to them, You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Wow. That's powerful. That's powerful. You like to appear righteous in public. You know, that's, that's what's going to happen today. All over the world, you know, is that uh, people are going to, you know, they're going to go and they're going to they're put on their best clothes. And they're going to make themselves look as good as they can. And they're going to walk into a place that they view as, you know, different from the rest of the world, it, it, you know, it's going to be a holy place. And they want to make sure that they look acceptable to be in it. That they're not in contrast to it, but that they, that they match the perceived holiness of the place with the perceived holiness of the individual when, in fact, neither are holy. But Jesus is holy. And so that brings us back to that question all the time. It's like, do we, want, do we want true righteousness or do we want the appearance of righteousness? Do I want to look like a follower of Jesus to others or do I want to actually be a follower of Jesus in my essence, in my core? Because God knows your hearts and God has always known our hearts. You know, that's what, back in the Old Testament, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God knows our hearts. You know, that's the one thing that we can't, you, you know, we can fool other people. You can even fool people in your own family, but you can't fool God. He knows. He knows all the deep, dark places of the heart. He knows every selfish thought. He knows every motivation that's not Jesus. He sees it all. Wonderful thing is, if you believe in Jesus, you stand there as a forgiven person. Even though you might still have a dark <laughs> crevice in your heart. And there is something you still haven't dealt with before God. Thank God we don't stand on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus.
Because if we had to stand on our own righteousness, who could stand? I couldn't. I don't know anybody who could other than Jesus himself. But remember, the Pharisees, man, we see the Pharisees throughout the scripture and we're like, ooh, we don't want to be like them. We don't want to be like them. We don't want to be like them. The Pharisees who dearly love their money. That'll hit to the core. That'll hit to the core. Remember what Jesus says, verse 15, what this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Verse 16, until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the messages of the prophets were your guides, but now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is eager to get in. But that doesn't mean that the law has lost its force. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear and the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. Remember in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said that he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but he, he would fulfill them. See, Jesus fulfilled the law in that he's the only one who's kept it 100% righteously. He's fulfilled the law. And the prophets prophesy about Jesus. He fulfills it, you know, at the cross, in his, in his birth, in his life, at the cross, in his resurrection, and in his future return. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy. But what he's trying to say here, to the, especially because of the Pharisees' context, because you know uh, the Pharisees are thinking, well, you don't even you know, want to have anything to do with the law of Moses. You know, they would use that kind of as an accusation against Jesus. But, so Jesus is, is trying to set the record straight. And then he gives, he gives an example. He says, for example, a man who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, and anyone who marries a, a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So he... He gives that example to say, hey, I haven't just thrown what, what was given by God through Moses out the window. Like, God still has his, his standards, okay, is what he's, he's getting at there. And we don't, you know, and there's, there's a whole other context where Jesus talks about, you know, where it is, a divorce is an acceptable thing in certain contexts. Um, Michael gave a really good message, you know, on divorce, um, a while ago that you can listen to on, you know, podcasts, and we don't have time to get into that this morning, but if that's something that you're interested in and hearing more about, it just, just points you in that, you know, direction, um, because Jesus here isn't trying to give a full, um, a full explanation of the whole subject. He's using it to make a specific point. So if you want a full explanation of the whole subject, listen to that other message uh, that's, that's very good and balanced. One thing I would say in that is that no, nowhere does Jesus or anyone else say that divorce is an unforgivable sin. It's not there. And Michael talks about that in, in the message. That's a really helpful point. So let's move along because now this next part, as we finish the chapter, it really ties into what he, Jesus just said. You cannot disconnect this next story that Jesus says from the teaching that he just gave and talking about the Pharisees loving their money, okay? So let's listen to it. There was, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, 
desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Okay, let's stop there for a second because I just want to set the context. And we'll take it piece by piece for the sake of time. Um, so here, we need to understand, I think, from the beginning that Jesus is using um, some figures of speech and somewhat of a figurative story to teach a spiritual lesson, okay? So when he talks about, you know, because you have this phrase, Abraham's bosom, and you're like, okay, that just sounds kind of weird. What's Abraham's bosom? You know, to us and our, you know, Western, you know, understanding, we don't really connect so much the term Abraham's bosom. But... You know, it's, it, what we see in the Old Testament is that when people are dying, you know, it's like being gathered to their fathers, being gathered back to Abraham, to Isaac, and, and Jacob. You know, if they were a person of, of faith, they could have that confidence that they would be, you know, w- with them. Um, you know, in fact, we see, you know, Abraham, the promise, even going back um, to the life of Abraham and the promise that God made to him that in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so, you know, Abraham is this, you know, key figure um, in, in the scriptures. And it's viewed here, Abraham's bosom is a figurative way of saying paradise. You remember Jesus on the cross, he said to the, to the thief that believed in, in him, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, so it's a, it's a figure of speech. And he's given a contrast here because the rich man, who does the rich man represent? Given what, what you know, we, are, we just have here in the Gospel of Luke, in the first half of Luke 16, who does the rich man represent? It represents the Pharisees. Okay? Who does the, the poor man represent? He views the ones that the Pharisees looked at as detestable and unacceptable to God. And, and notice how Jesus even describes him. You know, he, he describes him as abject poverty, in abject poverty. Well, remember, the Pharisees believed that a person, if a person was poor, they were poor because they deserved it. They had, you know, they had done bad things, or their parents or grandparents had done bad things, and that was God's punishment. In similar ways, it's like a, a Hindu mindset of you know, reincarnation and people being in a caste system where if a person is in abject poverty, you don't actually go and help that person because you're just extenuating, uh, you're just extending, excuse me, extending their, their length of suffering. They're going to have to pay their due. So to feed a poor, starving child is just to you know, extend the suffering. It's not going to alleviate anything. Is the, you know, that's like the Hindu mindset. Now, the Jewish mindset perhaps a little bit different than that, but the, um, in terms of the, the religious leaders, maybe a speck different than, from that, but there's a commonality in viewing it as that's you know, kind of what that person deserved either from what's in their own heart or it's a family curse or whatever it is, okay? So he's begging. He's in abject poverty. He can't know God. And then, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, again, in our context, you know, lots of people have dogs as pets and, you know, oh, the lovely dog and everything. In Jewish context, it's it's a dirty animal. It's an unclean animal. It's put in the unclean category. And so you have an, you know, this, person, this person in abject poverty, in sickness, 
is being constantly defiled by these dogs licking his sores. The only comfort he gets is a constant defilement. Like, that's in a, like in a bad place, and a, a Pharisee would have a hard time wrapping his mind around the, the concept that God loves this person. And in some ways, Jesus is begging the question even in the name Lazarus, because God, Lazarus, the name means God the helper. And yet, Lazarus appears to be completely and utterly forsaken from this human perspective here on this earth. Lazarus looks like a God-forsaken person. Yet, they can't see the bigger picture. Because they don't know what's going to happen to him after death. And what happens after death? To the Pharisees' shock and awe, Lazarus is in paradise resting on Abraham's bosom. Now again, context, the Eastern context and the context of you know, reclining at the, at the table where one person, uh, you know, the person that was in front of you be almost like in their bosom, so to speak, you know, and, and it's, a, it's an intimate thing. It's not a sexual thing at all, but it's an intimate thing. It's a closeness. It's a fellowship. And so we, have a, we can have a hard time wrapping our minds around, around that because, you know, we're going to sit in chairs. You know, we, have, we want a little bit of elbow room. Might be a little tight up there today. Everybody's staying to eat. But, you know, the idea of being, like, reclined and almost, like, touching the other person's, you know, body. Okay? But... This is the picture that we have here, but it's to show the fellowship. He's in a, you know, Lazarus is in paradise where everything is perfect, and he has that fellowship. And he's even close to Abraham himself in the story that, you know, that Jesus gives. There's an intimacy that's going on there. And so, you know, that had to be a shock for the Pharisees to see the rich man in, in Hades. So that rich man had been living the good life. He wasn't concerned a bit with Lazarus or people like him. And then what happens? Verse, we'll go back to verse 23. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And so what is Jesus teaching in this? You know, he's teaching that, you know, how things are here is not necessarily an indication of how they will be in eternity. That God sees the the big picture of it. And that the Pharisees, you know, had this assumption that, of course, they would go and be with God. And even out of love for them, Jesus is trying to blow that assumption out of the water. Like, don't assume that you're going to go and be with God. 
And in fact, in the story, you know, the rich man representing the Pharisees, it's like the Pharisees in mass are headed for Hades. Really, he's saying, you know, headed for hell. Just cut to the chase. And there's something else he's saying here. You better get this right here and now. Because, you know, Abraham says you can't go back and forth. From, you can't go from one side to the other side. You know, sometimes people want to take a look at this and say, oh, this is some sort of purgatory, you know, sort of situation. No, because in the idea of purgatory, it's one is, you know, paying for their sins here and then eventually being let in. Well, that's not what we have. You know, Abraham is saying, you can't come here and we can't go there. Like, it's, it's, a, done, it's a done deal. So it's a, it's a hard warning to these Pharisees of, you better check yourself, where you are, what you believe, how you're actually following God or not. And that's a tough, tough message. And then notice this, verses 27 through 31, as we begin to get to the, to the conclusion here. He says, then he said, I beg you, therefore, this is a rich man. I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Wow. Wow. Now, what do we do with that? That's a, that's a, a final warning there that Jesus gives. And, and, and you hear, you know, that the rich man, you know, in his care for his family, he doesn't want them to come where he is. You know, and, and this is just a reality that, you know, anyone who, who is in hell would want no one else to be there and would want someone to go and tell any of their family and friends and relatives and anyone they possibly could, you know, about Jesus and to give the warning of the reality of hell. That's what they would want. And then he says, you know, send Lazarus, because, you know, they'll believe he comes back from the dead. And, and, and Jesus, as he tells the story, you know, says, Abraham says no to that. Abraham says no, that if you didn't believe Moses and the prophets, you wouldn't believe even if someone is risen from the dead. And now, that's where things get really interesting. That's where things get really interesting. Because in just a little bit, Jesus is going to go and raise his friend Lazarus. Same name. He's going to go and raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. You know, as we look back at the history of Jesus. And so... You know, Lazarus, who was Jesus' friend, he doesn't completely fit the description, um, you know, of Lazarus here, you know, in this story that Jesus tells. Lazarus that actually was raised from the dead wasn't, you know, an extremely poor person or, you know, had a bunch of sores all over him or being licked by dogs and those sorts of things. But it's still representative. I think you still say it's representative. And that Jesus was, you know, just, he was using that description to, drive the point home really hard to the Pharisees about what they thought and who they thought was with God and and who they thought wasn't. But in John chapter 12, this is after Jesus has risen Lazarus from the dead. Uh, It says, Jesus entered the town of Bethany 
And when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Get the connection there? You know, it, really in this, in this story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is, is giving a prophetic word to these Pharisees that even when somebody is risen from the dead, you're still not going to believe because if you didn't believe Moses and the prophets... You're not going to believe even if somebody has risen from the dead. And sure enough, when he raises a man named Lazarus from the dead, the people don't believe, not the people, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and, you know, they don't believe in the, and they've already decided to kill Jesus when they could get an opportunity. And now they're going to, they want to take out Lazarus too. I mean, that's a hard heart. That is a hard heart to say, I've heard these messages that Jesus has given. I've heard about the rich man and Lazarus. There's a man named Lazarus actually risen from the dead. And instead of believing in Jesus, I'm going to try to kill Lazarus. That is a hard, hard heart. And it's a sad, sad thing. But in it also is another resurrection. You know, I think here that Lazarus is the one in mind, especially with Jesus using that same name. I think Jesus knew, I mean, Jesus already knew he was going to go in the future and raise Lazarus. You know, Lazarus was going to die, he was going to raise him from the dead. And I think that's why he uses the name. I can't say that, you know, 100% definitively, but it, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense. But we also have, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, you know, himself. Um, but it's an interesting thing here because um, even in, in these words of... Um, condemnation, you think about back in the Old Testament, God, you know, saying, you know, Nineveh, you're going to be destroyed. And then Jonah doesn't want to go, but God forces him to go to to tell the message, you're going to be destroyed. And there's no offer there of, in, in, to Nineveh, of just do this and you'll be okay. It's just the message is just a straight message of destruction is imminent. And, but the people respond by ripping their clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, fasting and praying and begging God for mercy. And God spares them until, you know, generations later, they had become so wicked and evil again and didn't have repentance when God finally gave judgment to them. So what you actually see in the book of Acts, which is interesting, is that a a good number of priests actually do become followers of Jesus. You know, and so many times a hard and prophetic word of, that Jesus gives here, you know, condemnation of basically you're all headed for hell, does have implicit in it an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity to say, you know, I'm wrong, and to be sorrowful before God and to receive forgiveness. Because at the heart of the character of God, we have a God who prefers mercy rather than judgment. If we're going to prefer mercy rather than judgment. That's at the heart of God. And which gives us great hope today because the reality for each one of us is that there are implications to the concept of resurrection, period, but specifically for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, we come this morning, we come to take, you know, the bread and the cup. 
representing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus that was sacrificed on the cross for our sins. That's a, you know, one of our great privileges is to remember Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us. But we make that remembrance in the context of his resurrection. Because we understand without the resurrection, there's no point in taking the bread and the cup to remember just another person who died on a cross. Because lots of men died on crosses. It doesn't have the power. If Jesus isn't risen, then he didn't actually pay for your sins. He didn't actually have power over sin and death. There's no point in believing anything to do with the Bible and Jesus. There's no point in making any sacrifice for being one of the followers, a follower of Jesus. Without the resurrection, none of it makes any sense, and you're wasting your time here this morning. You're just com- utterly, completely and utterly wasting your time. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't real, you would be better to search for something else because this obviously wouldn't be the truth. For us, everything hinges on that first day of the week when the ladies went to the tomb. It was empty. There was no one there. So if Jesus is not risen... Forget the whole thing. Forget this church. Forget any church. Forget any sacrifice. Forget any, I mean, forget it all. It's nothing but an illusion, a myth, a great myth. But if Jesus is risen, then doesn't he have to be your motivation for life? Doesn't he then have to be your motivation of why you get up in the morning? Doesn't he have to be the motivation for everything that you do throughout your day and how you conduct yourself in your work or in your classes or in your family or in the church? Like It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And in that light, there's an expectation of faith and an expectation of following. Because if he's truly risen from the dead, then it's not enough for me just to have this mental ascent, this mental idea that says, Yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead, and then it stops there. No, it has to penetrate every deep crevice of my heart, and his light has to shine in there and expose anything that is not like him. And a lot of that happens immediately when we come to know Jesus, like we become a new creation, right? That's what the scripture promises, that you're a new creation, and you stand, that God views you as justified. You stand as a justified person before God. And all your sins are wiped away. But yet, there's probably still some pain to deal with in the heart. There's probably still some shame to deal with. And it's not because God hasn't forgiven. Of course it has. It's just that we haven't recognized and fully dealt with it all. It's not on God's end. It's just that we have to open ourselves up and say, Lord, you know this place in here. Show it to me and cleanse it and work it out. So I'd be more like you, Jesus. But there's also a reality, but because, you know, of our flesh, I, I think sometimes we don't, even, we don't even see that dark spot. We don't even see it. And so that's where we have to say, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, expose it, shine your light on it. Get rid of it. 
Because if Jesus is risen, then doesn't everything in life have to come down to Jesus make me more like you and help me to see as you see and help me to act in each situation as you would want me to act? And so what does that mean? I mean, it affects every area of your life. I just want to be really, really clear about this. It means that if you're married, you know, you're to, if, you're, if you're a husband, you know, you're, you're to love your wife and to sacrifice for yourself for her as Jesus did for the church. And if you're a, you know, if, if you're a wife, you're to, you know, respect your husband and love your husband like Jesus does the church. I mean, like the church does Jesus. Excuse me. It means that if you're not married, then, you know, you, you say, what does Jesus want me to do? How does he want me to control my vessel, myself, until I am married? You see, a lot of people, a lot of people come to know Jesus and they don't understand that that's going to affect their sex life. But wait a second, what does believing in Jesus have to do with my sex life? And the answer is everything. Answers everything. See, a lot of people come to know Jesus, and like these, you know, these Pharisees, they thought they could just, they thought they could be greedy and stingy and do whatever they wanted to with their money. You say, well, what does being a follower of Jesus have to do with my money? And the answer is everything. And say, what does being a follower of Jesus have to do with my job and the quality of my work? And the answer is everything. What does being a follower of Jesus have to be doing what type of student I am? And the answer is everything. I mean, a follower of Jesus is what sort of friend am I supposed to be? Or what does that have to do with me being a friend to someone else? And the answer is everything. Everything. Jesus is to be everything and everything. And what that means is that if I'm going to have the right order of things in my life, that I have to love Jesus more than I love my wife. And I have to love Jesus more than I love my kids. And I have to love Jesus more than I love you. And I have to love Jesus more than I love this church. And I love all those things. And you know I love all those things. All those, I love those people. And I love this people deeply and passionately. But if my love for Jesus isn't higher than that, then things get out of whack real quick. The same thing is true for each of our lives. And that's why Jesus asked, that's why Jesus said, who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's why Jesus said that. It's not that he's being harsh and mean. It's just that things have to have a proper priority. Otherwise, we mess up those other things. And the only way not to mess it up is to have Jesus be everything and everything. And that's what the resurrection calls us to this morning. It, it doesn't allow us just to stay, you know, how I am. It doesn't allow me to stay how I am. It demands that I, I, I keep searching and seeking and praying and asking, how can I be more like you, Jesus? And the truth is that some days I do not do a very good job of that. The truth is some days I do not do a very good job of that because some days I can be selfish. Some days I can put myself first. And not Jesus. 
That's where we come back to that bread and that cup because the scripture tells us before we take it to confess our sins, to seek if there's anything wrong within us that we need to confess. There's that ultimate confession that once and for all, Jesus, I believe in you, and that's salvation. But there's an ongoing confession. Striving to be more like Christ, and that's the you know, a process of sanctification. But it's a process, and it takes time, and it takes work, and it takes effort. And just like being greedy is contrary to being a follower of Jesus, so is being lazy. It requires some work and some effort. You know, I, I think the biggest disservice that, that those in leadership have done over the years is in order not to be legalistic, to make the bar so that there is no bar, that there is no standard of what it means to be, to be a follower of Jesus. So anything goes and whatever, you know, however you want to live and whatever you want to do, it's all okay. But that's a disservice because Jesus is worthy of the calling with which we were called. What's the calling? Jesus is the calling. And he's worthy that we would strive, not in our own strength, but in his strength, to be more and more like him. May Jesus help us this morning to live our lives in the light of the resurrection, of the cross and the resurrection, the cross and that it's, been, it's paid for. My sins have been paid for. You may still look at me as guilty. But God looks at me through the lens of Jesus and says I'm innocent. That I'm justified. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. It covers me. In the light of his resurrection, how will you live the rest of your life? In the light of the resurrection of Jesus, it has to mean everything or it means nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We want to love you. Um, Sometimes we know that our spirit and our flesh are at war with one another. Your scripture even tells us this. But we know that you in us, that you're more powerful than, than our flesh. And that the only path to victory is surrender. So Jesus, I pray that we each and also collectively would surrender our hearts to you this morning. Jesus, you have had victory over all sin and death. Shouldn't you have victory also over our hearts this morning? Victory over our flesh. Lord, please make us more like you. As John the Baptist said, Lord, you must increase and we must decrease. Help us, Lord Jesus. We look to you at the cross. We see your sacrifice for us. We remember that as we take the bread and the cup. We know the cross couldn't hold you. The grave could not contain you. And you burst forth on that Sunday morning alive. 
You did not struggle out of that tomb, Lord, but that you walked out as a victorious king. And so we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You're our Savior and King, and that you will return. But until that day, help us to be ready and help us to be in your strength, in your power, in your love, becoming more and more like you, Jesus. Show us anything that isn't like you.